Hello and welcome. This is Christianity, the backstory. Looking between the lines of church history and the New Testament. I'm Elliot Smith, and this is going to be like a little unorthodox tour through early church times for anyone who's interested in what might have been going on behind the scenes. Behind the scenes of that official story about how Christianity came together. The one we're supposed to believe. The one where the church was right and everybody else was wrong. And along the way I'll be looking at Christianity as an ideology. As a discipline, ideology is described in the Oxford Dictionary as the science of ideas, the study of their origin and nature. It's a word that tends to refer to a system of ideas behind political theory. But this religion has been an ideological basis for a lot of things, including political theory, so it should be okay to look at it in this way. To look at its development in history, its evolution in the Christian psyche, and to look at it as a set of ideas that can be assessed for their credibility. I've recently discovered the benefits of learning through podcasts, and my understanding of early church and Roman history has been enhanced by some great work produced by some objective podcasters. For those who are looking for a Christian perspective on church history, there's plenty out there, and there are good academic discourses that this podcast won't be counted amongst. This one falls somewhere between religious and academic. I won't be going through the history of the early church using books like Acts in the New Testament, as if it's a framework for all we need to know, ignoring the bias and intent of the writer. And on the other hand, I won't be talking from the rational standpoint that says, Whenever people talk about God doing something, they must be making things up. God's involvement is what this is supposed to be all about. So I'll look at church history with this in mind, considering the role that God is meant to have played in the story. Before I start though, I'd like to make something clear. I'll be making observations about the institutional church and its doctrine, and they won't be favourable. There's a lot to ignore if you set out to make the church look good and there are plenty of religious assessments that do that. I'll be focusing on the bits that get ignored, if you know what I mean. Looking for logic where logic was never really supposed to be. Asking questions when you're supposed to move on. Stopping to see the leprechauns. Of course, this will involve what many sincere people personally hold to be true, and I'd like to apologise in advance for any offence, but it's directed at a religious ideology that I think should be critically examined to see if it's worthy of its long-standing status as a set of ideas that came from God, and to consider whether, in this enlightened age, due diligence is being carried out before people teach it to children. If this sounds a bit much, keep listening and you might see what I mean. Because in this introduction, we're going to be talking about the story that was contrived, protected, and packaged for people to believe by the church with its rise to power. So we're going to be looking at that story, recognising that the truth behind the story is another thing, and it may well be different. Like the way a traffic investigator would consider someone's account of an incident. And with that in mind, here's a little parable to get the ball rolling. To what can we compare the story the church has handed down to us? What is it like? It's like a story told by some people who were on a bus a long time ago. A story involving a series of incidents and some drama about which the influential people on the bus agreed 
and they were happy with this story of their journey, and they spread it around. And this being a long time ago, this story has become officially accepted as the outline of what happened on that bus, because they were very important people. But the story is now under review. It seems like an unnecessarily sceptical affair and quite frankly offensive, but it has been suggested that some of the people who got run over by the bus might have had a different perspective. Sadly, they're no longer available to comment, but apparently their story is supposed to be taken into consideration. And they might have got a few words out before they died a horrible death. I'm going to put forward another way of looking at the church's story of how things progressed. I'll be doing this within the introduction because I've decided I'm going to be doing my best to be objective in this podcast. And as the introduction is something that comes before the start of it, I figure this is my only chance to be opinionated and to throw my bias into that story to give you a heads up on where I'm coming from. Because later, once I get started, even when I'm trying to be objective, I'll still be at the helm and taking things in a certain direction. So you may as well know what I think and then you'll be able to assess how well I'm going with giving a fair view of things if you stick around. So Christianity starts with ideas about things that happened in the past. As anyone who's looked into church history knows, it's not the nice tidy story that might be expected. People who start out with a high regard for the church can be disappointed and for good reason. It's messy, mean-spirited, it's discrimination and elitism on a monumental scale. The institutional church has largely been about power and control. The worst of this was a long time after the first century, but it started early enough to play an integral part in the formation of the religion. Christianity would like to distance itself from a lot of its history because the idea is that God was guiding the church into truth. So for this idea to work, the nasty stuff needs to be separated from what God was doing. When the church was putting together what Christians believe, they were inspired by God. But when they used their power to establish their supremacy over others, violently putting down people who disagreed with their doctrine, that must have been other times. Times when the church lost its way, something different. Activity not condoned by the true church. Even so, there's still a hint of holy war in there. The idea of fighting the good fight against the forces of evil. It was a process that established who the winners were, and that turned out for the best. It meant the right people managed things. God made sure of that, right? And the losers. It goes without saying that they were wrong because they were smashed by the winners and didn't get to pass on their religious DNA. Heaven forbid. These are very foundational assumptions. They are made before the Bible is picked up. They are assumptions that should be questioned and not held as items of faith. The process that got the winners into a position to refine Christian truth needs to be recognised for what it was. The present is connected with the past. Christianity with the powerful church-state institution that was so involved in putting it together. There should be trust issues here. Church history is a story that is drawn from a limited amount of ancient documents. Whenever the story is told, there is a degree of trust placed in the storyteller, and there's generally a lot of trust placed in the writers of those documents, who were also people telling stories about things that happened. 
Our world has always been made up of people who are trustworthy and people who are not so trustworthy. This thing is very open for interpretation and stories need to be tested for consistency and compared with other information to consider the character of the storyteller. There are definitely those who would say I can't be trusted with a commentary on this subject, so you should do the same with me. I clearly have my opinions, I have a theory that I'm quite attached to, and I'm going to make observations on the rationale behind Christian doctrine and its historical development, using my limited knowledge and intellect combined with my imagination. And these have never been ingredients for an inerrant composition. But then after the intro, I'll start on the first question. What is Christianity? And my intention will be to step back as an observer. It'll be a straightforward four dummies approach for people who don't want to start with assumptions, allowing things to unfold in the direction that those first questions lead. That's the plan anyway. If anyone listens to this introduction through to the end, I hope I'll get some feedback that corrects me, adds information I missed, or points out where I'm making assumptions. Although you'll see that my intention is disruptive, I hope you'll also see that my object is a positive one. I do personally believe that something extraordinary happened in first century Judea and Galilee. I'm not here to question faith in God, I'm here to question faith in the Church. Because the Church stands between us and those first century events, both historically and psychologically, for both Christians and the rest of us. I'll put forward that it's not just Christians that are under the Church's influence. Personal belief aside, the story behind the religion is real and much more interesting. The trouble is, it's obscured. After some intensive research into church history, I am now convinced beyond any doubt that the church is seriously unhelpful. Just about everything we know about the man supposedly at the centre of this, known as Jesus, has been filtered through the church. When I say church here, the best designation to add for that historical church would be Catholic the early Catholic Church. The vast majority of what is now referred to as Christian has come from that church, and this is something that we'll be looking into at length. The church will also refer to the ongoing influence and manifestation of that church in the modern religion, that perceived divine authority that says if you don't subscribe to Christian doctrine, you are not okay. This is a significant part of the psyche of the Christian world. People believe it, people half believe it. It's hard to shake off, even if it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I've done a few years of fairly intensive research into the first to fourth centuries, primarily focused on a quest for the historical Jesus, and then on how things progressed from that original community of followers into the preceding centuries. I do have a Christian background, which means in the past I've had a bias that was like an elephant in a china shop. But it was with this bias that I started looking into church history, and I slowly stripped away my assumptions to eventually arrive at the conclusions I now hold. These conclusions got me into a lot of trouble. Although I had more questions than I had conclusions. I had no idea how my life was about to change. Conversations with Christian friends and family didn't end well. I took my questions to church, and that was interesting. I definitely wasn't ready for that. The response I got. It runs deep. Religion seems to be something that gets attached to your ego and you can get defensive in that clash of opinions as if your life depends on it. 
For a long time, it was such a sensitive issue. I was so involved in the whole thing and affected by the deeply personal nature of how my position was seen to classify me in the eyes of others that I found it hard to talk about without being too personally invested. That was around 10 years ago. But I'm still fascinated by the whole thing. According to the church, I am so wrong. And I can't say this hasn't contributed to my motivation here. As a heretic, I'm questioning their position. In fact, I've got some good questions that I'll be taking back to the church. I get the impression that in academia there's a hands-off approach when it comes to the logic behind Christian faith. I don't think the church deserves that, nor has it ever really been brought to account for what it's done over the centuries. The questions will start at the beginning. Looking in at the church from outside, through the wrong side of those stained glass windows, where the effect of colours and light is not the same. Foundational questions will take us back, but not as far as might be expected. Back to times of hyper-discrimination where words like barbarian, pagan, heretic, were unhelpfully used to describe people who were different in some way, people who may well have been more intelligent. The 4th century was well underway, and a slight deviation in theology was enough to brand you a heretic, and so as being Jewish, like Jesus and his followers, and their descendants. These people on the outside ended up on the wrong side of huge fortifications, both physical and social, and so they were disempowered and silenced. Available documentation from early church times largely places even the historian inside the church looking out at the eyes of these others, wondering what they're thinking, what they might have said had their perspectives been recorded, or had what they did record not been erased by those jealously guarding the church's version of truth. With the convenience of hundreds of years of domination, plenty of time to root out and do away with any dissenting voices, and do away with them they did. This is a fact that doesn't seem to be appreciated as it should in accounts of church history. It's a fact that should permeate every article, every assumption, every superstition. The church did a lot of erasing of people and their opinions. What they left for us is their version of the truth and their critiques of their adversaries. I am generalising here. Other perspectives on early Christianity have survived, but from what I can see they cleaned up pretty good, so that what survived was Orthodox Christianity. Orthodox, in this sense, essentially meaning approved doctrine. There's an Orthodox church now, like a branch of Christianity, but that's different. The meaning of the word here is um, approved doctrine. It distinguished the people that claimed to be right as opposed to anybody else. Outside the church were people asking that very first question, starting from zero. What's this all about? What reason would I have to believe this above the idea that the world is on the back of a huge tortoise? And among those people on the wrong side of that fortress were groups who had other ideas about what Christianity should be. Some of them absurdly esoteric, others not so. And among them, people who would have known more about the original Jesus movement, a movement that arose in another place, at another time, 
among another people. These other perspectives are all but lost, but they can be gleaned from early documents, like letters of the Church Fathers, who wrote in condemnation of people who disagreed with them. Here's an assumption that I think is reasonable. The more valid the claim other groups had, in other words, the more they were associated with the original Jesus movement, the more they were considered a threat, which meant they needed to keep well away from the church. This was not a time of open inquiry. The Enlightenment was a long way off. Fast forward to modern times and it's not so risky to disagree with the church. It doesn't take such bravery and fortitude, but there are similar dynamics. The church closes ranks and covers the children's ears when the heretic says anything, even if it's about how to make a banana sandwich. Any comment is cause for alarm. There's well over a billion Christians in the world, all being saturated with the same essential theory. That's a lot of like-minded people. And it is a theory, like the Big Bang Theory, or the theory of evolution, the flat earth theory, string theory. I can't imagine a billion string theorists being so defensive. A wave of bristling offence running through a bunch of emotionally attached string theorists at the suggestion that they might be wrong. And what's the difference? Why is there a defensive stance that says Christian theory should be immune to scrutiny? Well, this theory of everything has God attached. And with God attached, the theory doesn't have to make complete sense because faith is there for the bits that make no sense. But if God was affiliated with this, there wouldn't be any nonsense. It works the other way around. God's involvement means theory that makes more sense the more you look into it. He's got to be better than Einstein. So if this is his theory, it's got to be impressive. Of course, the general idea is that Christianity's founder was the man we call Jesus and that his teaching forms the basis of the religion. And most people recognise that this was something special. His teaching was revolutionary. Blessed are the peacemakers. Love your neighbour, your enemies. It strikes a chord in us. There's a general recognition that this is the essence of how life is meant to be. But the teaching of Jesus is not what the later church was about. The later church was something different altogether. And the theory, the ideology that we're talking about here, is what the later church produced. It's about Jesus, but he's been turned into an icon. These days, the general idea, particularly for Protestants, is that Christianity bypasses that church, the Catholic church, projecting back to Jesus with the documents in the New Testament. But although the New Testament contains Jesus' teaching, along with some other good material, there are problems with how the documents to be included in it were chosen by the later church and then as one book declared to be a cohesive message from God, along with the Hebrew Tanakh or Old Testament. The first problem, the selection process. It's like trusting the mafia to oversee an election for government, having faith in the idea that the procedure will all work out as God intended. Fair enough if you're that way inclined, but not a given. It's possible that God wasn't involved in the election and that the winning candidate was actually chosen by the Mafia. The biggest difference is that the Mafia would be much quicker and more conclusive. It's not until the 4th century that the 27 documents of the New Testament are first mentioned together as an exclusive list 
known as the New Testament canon, and physically combined in early book forms known as codexes, becoming one body of material. It was basically first published in the 4th century, because before that these were separate documents with various reputations, letters and things written by people, not recognised as part of this book. They were sacred, but this was due to who they were written by and what they were about. There wasn't a lot of reason to think God was the ghost writer back then. The idea that together they formed a message from God was courtesy of the 4th century Catholic Church. But this didn't mean there was consensus and debate continued into the 5th century and beyond. So, what's the role that God is meant to be playing in this story? There's one of those signs outside a church up the road from where I live. It says, Read the Bible before you meet the author. The idea of God being the author of the Bible is described in different ways, sometimes quite vaguely, but this is the general idea. God inspired the writers so that they wrote what he wanted. So for the New Testament writings, he did this in the first century, and they were published together as his book in the fourth. So if he was the author, and this was his intention, he waited a few hundred years to get published. That would be pretty frustrating for the creator of the universe. you think he could have pulled some strings. He knew people in high places. Those orthodox bishops and popes were praying to him. All he had to do was ask. They were the people taking care of his business. But hang on. If the New Testament was a special revelation from God, why did he have to wait until Christianity transmuted into a power-hungry institution to make it known. The endorsement of the church was definitely effective in those days for authorising things, getting people on board and agreeing with stuff. But if you want to get a book out there, do you choose an agency that's torturing people for your campaign? When you want to come across to your readership as, I don't know, good? Hang on. Torturing people? and deciding on material for the New Testament canon around the same time? Surely not. Let's go back to 380 CE, or AD, and have a look at the last section of an edict that made Orthodox Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. Issued by three reigning emperors, the Edict of Thessalonica. Quote, we authorise the followers of this law to assume the title of Catholic Christians. But as for the others, since in our judgment they are foolish madmen, we decree that they shall be branded with the ignominious name of heretics, and shall not presume to give to their conventicles the name of churches. They will suffer in the first place the chastisement of the divine condemnation, and in the second the punishment of our authority which in accordance with the will of heaven we shall decide to inflict. Unquote. If you were a heretic in those days, the will of heaven was definitely something you didn't want to stick around for. As I said, this edict was issued in 380 CE, and two years later, the Council of Rome in 382 CE was the first church council to accept the present Catholic canon. So this was clearly a pivotal time when material for the New Testament canon was being considered and authorised by the Church. 
Those 27 documents that make up the New Testament were slowly making a transition in the Christian psyche from being venerated to being deified. Moving from being the perspectives of men to being the unified perspective of God. Church proclamations and the production of physical books inside nice leather covers to go inside nice big churches were huge leaps forward in this process. Meanwhile, out the back, the old heretic was being tortured for having a different opinion, or maybe for having a different book. There were other venerated documents that didn't make it into the canon, and there is no doubt that there were further documents, records of people who had completely different perspectives, that didn't make it at all. Although, let's pause for a moment. That edict was issued by emperors, and the council, the one that decided on the canon, was presided over by a pope. So there's a distinction. Maybe the pope was listening to God more than he was aligned with the sentiment of the edict. Maybe there was still some separation between church and state, and that marriage of the two hadn't yet been consummated. Well, here's something interesting. The Pope who presided over the Council of Rome, Damasus I, was the first Pope to receive the title Pontifex Maximus, a high priestly office of ancient Rome that had been subsumed and held by emperors up until this time. This is when it was transferred to the office of Pope, the time of Damasus I, the time of New Testament canon authorization. These were indeed special times. The will of heaven and the will of the empire were now fully united. Yeah, by this stage of the 4th century, the church was pretty well f The second problem. The 27 documents of the New Testament were written and or pieced together from the work of others by different people. Human beings with their own partialities, and reading them with this in mind is reading them for what they are. So if you read them believing that, yes, it is a letter or whatever, but... It's also God talking. It becomes an entirely different thing. The writer's opinion becomes infallible. Wherever there's bias, discrimination, egotism, instead of being seen for what they are, they become sanctioned by God. More than that, a role for God is assumed where he plays favourites and is basically in the background saying what he said. He plays a part like a character in a play where the writer gives him his lines and his theology, and is there to validate the whole thing. Of course, we're meant to believe it's the other way around, and God is the originator, the primary author, inspiring the writers as they wrote. Is this a book from God? This is the question on which everything hinges for Christianity now. The question should be asked, not skipped over, and the answer should make sense. We're past the stage where it was all about the church as God's agency on earth, the authoritative interpreter of mandates from on high. The church has done its dash, burned its witches. There's no going back to the glory days. Faith in the church has largely been replaced with faith in the book. So if this is God's book, it should be pretty good. Unlike media productions by mortals, it shouldn't be misleading. It's not going to be like, say, the story of Australia's colonisation 
as taught in schools during the days of the White Australia policy. There's something interesting about the central story in the New Testament. It's an event that's quite solid as an event in history, the crucifixion of Jesus. Writers and or editors of the New Testament documents seem to be keen to answer two questions for us. Who killed Jesus and why he had to die? Let's keep in mind that the later church came to power under Roman patronage and that the original Jesus movement was Jewish. Two very different peoples and two very different times. The time span between the two was about 300 years. Jesus was crucified somewhere around 30 CE and the Edict of Thessalonica made Orthodox Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire in 380 CE. Although the turning point was earlier in the 4th century with the Roman Emperor Constantine. So looking at the scenario historically, the same Roman Empire, evolving and changing as it did, was in power throughout these times. It was under the authority of the Roman Empire that Jesus was crucified in the 30s. And then it was the Roman Empire that ended up hosting the church in the 300s, continuing on its course of domination but hand in hand with the church when councils were held to determine Christian doctrine. So, recapping, the Roman authority that killed Jesus ended up in charge of the church, and it's with the advent of this relationship that many core Christian doctrines were formulated and the New Testament was assembled. Interesting. And this is the church that's claiming succession from Jesus' original followers. It's extraordinary. But this is how the story goes, and it is the story that has prevailed. An anti-Semitic Romanized church of the empire claims descendancy from Jewish peasants who were followers of a Jewish rabbi who exhorted his followers to peace and forgiveness. And somehow this slips under the radar. If Christianity is supposed to be derived from Jesus and his followers, why is this not questioned? For the modern Christian, if you question this assumption, you largely question Christianity itself. So the assumption is put down as an item of faith. But what about 4th century Christians? Didn't they ask questions of the church's story? Well, it's quite within the realms of possibility that some of them did, and that it was dangerous to question the story in the same way that it was dangerous to question the doctrine. The story validated the church's position as an instrument of God. So by the will of heaven, in inverted commas, you and your questions might just fall into a hole. For the 4th century Roman Catholic Church, it might not have been so much about really having a connection to Jesus. Who needs logic when you've got an empire? They were telling people what to believe doctrinally, so they could tell people to believe their succession story as well. They were going to gain full rights to this religion no matter what. So the transition from its Jewish context to something more suitable for a cosmopolitan empire was going to happen. Their rivals were elsewhere, and increasingly so as heresy was being dealt with. But something had to be done about these people. So things weren't looking too good for people who really had a claim to succession from Jesus' original followers, particularly Jewish communities. They didn't have to ask questions to be in danger. All they had to do was exist. And they were quite stubborn about that. 
They also stubbornly insisted on remaining Jews, and they also probably had people who knew how to write. Should these things be a surprise? They are a bit of a surprise if you believe the story the church handed down to us, because they challenged that story, and the church at the time knew that. But there is one historical fact that does fit with the church's story. Those communities don't seem to have any descendants, and very little of what they wrote has survived. What has come down to us is some of the books in the New Testament and criticisms of them as heretics by, of course, orthodox writers, whose writings, of course, did survive. I'll be looking into this later. I know this might sound like some sort of conspiracy theory, as if the church was going around an entire empire, seeking out and destroying documents like a bunch of mad religious fanatics, burning anything that didn't make them look good. You know, if, if that were the case, and if their story was a fabrication, the more historical records there were that they didn't like, the bigger the hole they were going to leave in the history of pre-4th century Christianity. Well, both church and empire are known to have been extremely thorough when they put their minds to something, and a huge hole there is. If it wasn't for their efforts, surely we would know more about Jesus. There's something else the story needed to do as well for the empire. Someone else needed to be the bad guys. The empire was now Christian, but the empire had, you know, killed the man that the title Christ refers to, and that wasn't a good look. They'd also been killing a lot of Christians in previous centuries as well, when Christianity was still open for debate, and the stream known as Orthodox didn't have the same power to demand assent to their doctrines. Anyway, for anyone who's played Cluedo, this is all culminating in something like a game of Cluedo where every card for the potential culprit says the Jews. And a timely and very powerful book is coalescing, a book that is not going to set the record straight for them. It's made up of documents chosen by a religious dictatorship with its own agenda. It's powerful because in addition to choosing those documents, this dictatorship is imbuing this material with celestial authority. The book is made up of documents that were written a long time ago, so they're certainly not creating them. But how faithful are they in handling their transmission? Hard to say, really. Changes would have been noticed, but you never know. They might have been able to slip in a few edits. Motivation? Yeah, a supremely powerful religious dictatorship might feel like they have the right to at least some control of the media. In the second part of this introduction, I'm going to illustrate why I believe some of the New Testament documents were substantially altered from their originals. My opinion is that this is obvious. When it happened is a much harder question to answer. These documents are understood to have originated within the first century, but the earliest existing fragments, or portions of them, are dated to the second and third centuries. And the earliest existing complete copies are dated to the fourth century. So the idea that the orthodox documents of the fourth century are essentially the same as the originals from the first century is another item of faith. But faith in what? If you call it faith in God, it's more like an expectation, 
something very unusual that God is supposed to have done during this period if he was playing his part correctly. His role was to put free will on hold for a while and stay the hand of any scribe with instructions to do anything funny with his book. So it's a job description with an emphasis on making sure later Christians believe the right things. And it's a position that God may not have accepted, possibly because he's never done that sort of thing before. When did he say he was working for the Orthodox anyway? Maybe some of the heretics had better work ethics. And maybe they had more original versions of the Gospels and Acts because they were more trustworthy. Trust is a better word for this. It's trust in the Orthodox people who handled the transmission of these documents. Trust in people that sort of evolved into the idea of faith in God. So the question is, how trustworthy were these people? Okay, we've arrived at the introduction into mission. This thing became a bit bigger than I expected, so I've broken it into two to make each part suitable for a podcast. In the next segment, introduction part two, we'll be opening the book. Thanks for listening.